Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science, and then we discuss how we can apply them to work and life. This episode is brought to you by us, The Lantern Group and Behavioral Alchemy, two applied behavioral science consultancies that you can bet on to improve the people issues in your business. And speaking of bets, our guest today is our friend and author, Annie Duke. We recently recorded a conversation with her about her new book, How to Decide, and we are pleased to share all of that with you. She shared some terrific insights on how to develop the archer's mindset, why your gut is not a decision tool, and the power of negative thinking. And let me tell you, that's not what you think. No, no, it's not what you think. So you should tune in and listen to our entire conversation. We also want to let you know that we are sharing this recording while blushing a little bit. Annie recounts the story of how she asked Tim and me to review an early draft of this book, and we politely let her know that things, well, they they weren't working. We felt that the initial draft just didn't sound like her. Yeah, she took our comments seriously and developed a new frame of thinking about the project. Then she produced what we think is a terrific how-to book on decision-making. Of course, there's a link in the show notes to get a copy right that is super hot off the presses right now. And because our conversation with Annie are, let's just say, a bit unconventional, we decided to take an unconventional approach to this episode. So we're going to be grooving throughout the episode as opposed to at the end like we normally do. Yeah, so uh, you'll hear some transitional music and the soundtrack to indicate when Kurt and I are grooving on something that Annie said, and then that music will kind of play throughout and then back, we'll end it and to get back into the original recording with Annie. But we just want to let you know in advance. So, well, because it's not our normal approach. Yeah, and we want you to be expecting what's going to happen. And we also want to let you know that our patron subscribers are growing each week. We want you to join the gaggle of groovers who are already subscribing for as little as a venti pumpkin spice latte per month. Thank you for writing that in for me, Tim. Yes. So check out the Patreon subscription page at www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves for more information. It won't take long at all. And by the way, Kurt, I've seen someone get through the subscription form in 47 seconds. Maybe one of these listeners could set a new land speed record. Tim, Tim, that's a lie. All right. (laughs) All right. We've, we've never seen anyone get through the subscription process in faster than 58 seconds. Well, got to have something to shoot. Gotta have- all right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we've never seen anybody get through the subscription process at all. So we have no idea. But with that, we encourage you to just sit back as Tim and I love to do with a fine draft of decision-making brew and enjoy our conversation with Annie. <laughs> So uh, which would you rather have, uh, dinner with your favorite rock star or sports star? Oh, rock star. Rock star. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And who would that be? Exactly. Okay. Seriously, because I I think it would be so interesting as like a study in human behavior. And it also happens to be like my favorite rock star would be Jack White. Oh, yeah. Right? 
Yeah. Very That's cool. Different. That's he is a, he a is whole. a definite interesting person in the couple interviews that I've heard. He, his thinking process is a right? little bit different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There yeah. you go. All right. Uh, do you prefer life in a small western town or a big eastern city? Big eastern city. Uh, oh. Good, good. Okay. Uh, travel. Total East Coaster. Oh my God. Like, I know I lived out West for a long time, but I was like fish out of water. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So what about uh, travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Oh, that's interesting. I, I wish I could have it in between. Um, oh, see, this is a false choice, a, a false dichotomy, also known as something that you can uh, you know, Robert Cialdini would be very pleased with you for creating this totally false choice. <laughs> and therefore, I do not fall for it. <laughs> An itinerary where there is free time in there where I can choose what I would like to do and the option to change my mind. Yes, I love that answer. I shall All right. not fall for your influence, BS. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we pick up a few things here and there. We just aren't that yes, good at do. actually implementing them. There yes, you go. All right. All right. So uh, what is your estimate for the number of top 10 Billboard charts uh, songs that Drake has had with an upper and lower bound? Oh my gosh. So that, you picked a good one because I, you know, well, my kids would probably know this. Uh, he's pretty popular. Here's a, here's a hint. He has more downloads on Spotify than oh, I know. anyone. No, he's, hugely, yeah. he's hugely popular. I'm just trying yeah. to think like, I don't know. So the problem is I need to sort of fermiize this, right? Like, I don't know. Um, I have to think about how many songs has he produced he's been mm-hmm. doing it for a very long time so like how how much output is he putting out a year yeah so i mean i got i don't know so i'm just gonna get well, to my thinking well, well you have to think he's canadian so that you got to drop down by 10 whatever you yeah, get there there. You, oh. <laughs> you know i assume he's probably putting out 15 you know 20 songs a year probably and i, I think he's been going for quite a while now right like 10 years yeah so uh you know, but I'm sure a lot of it is like crap. So, I mean, because that's just true. Um, so I'm going to say my upper bound is going to be like 40. Okay. And my lower bound is, no, gosh, I'm gonna, my upper bound's 50. And my, okay. it's top 10, it's not one. Right? right. Yeah. Top 10. That's right. Top okay. 10. So my upper bound is 50 and my lower bound is 20. You know what? Good. So what's your actual, do you have a right in between? So you're doing I'm yeah. a normal distribution here. Okay. So. All right. So yeah. you're at, what is that? 35, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. 41, 41, you, you changing Shoot your upper your boundary looking there. You did it. So, and let me just say, that's a really important thing for people listening to know, because I said eyes. So for people who don't know, you can break down, if there's a problem that seems too big to solve, you can start to break down and think, well, what what are the things that would help me? Like, what's the information that I would need to know? And break it down into, like Kahneman would call them mediating judgments. So, um, so that's why I was thinking, well, let me think, how long has he been uh, going for what do I think the estimate of how many songs he has produced a year? So that's a subjective judgment. I'm guessing, you know, I'm making, but, it, and when you start to break it down into that, you can generally get closer to the range. So this is actually a really good decision strategy that we just 
that we just demonstrated by Which my. Which is why we brought it up. About Drake. Hey guys, so this is the first time we're breaking in, like we said we were going to be doing. We wanted to just point out to you that the way that Annie just answered that question about Drake and looking at the upper and lower limits is really a process of decision-making that she talks about in her book. And it's really this mindset of an archer that she's taking in. She's trying to figure this out and really looking and saying, hey, we're, there is uh, no just guessing, it's an educated guess. Well, one of the things that you talk about in your in, in, in the new book, right, is this that there are that every guess is an educated guess. And you talk right. about the archer's mindset and, and what you were just talking about was taking some of those pieces in there. You knew that Drake, he, he wasn't just a big shot for one year. Right. He, no. he didn't just come on the, the scene in 2019 or 18. He's you like, know, he's like a million memes. Yeah. And so you 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 understand that. And so you can start bringing that in. So so help us understand from a decision making perspective, um, what is that archer's mindset and, and what are some of the things that you can do in order to, to help improve some of that thinking? Yeah. So so basically, w- one of the things that I see when when people are dealing with subjective judgments is that because they suspect that if they give you an answer, it won't be the objectively correct answer. So like if we take the the question that you asked me, how many top tens, you know, has Drake had? Well, I know I can't, if I give you my guess, it, it's probably not going to be exactly correct. That would be very hard to do. That they end up in the space where they just say, well, I'd just be guessing. Mm-hmm. And then they don't actually, they, 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 they're unwilling to provide you with an answer. And what I really try to get across to people is that you're aiming for the bullseye, but you want to have the mindset of an archer, which is, let me try to think about, like, how can I get on the target? Because if I can do that while I'm aiming at the bullseye, like, I'm going to, I get points for hitting the target. And the more that I try to really think about where that bullseye is, the more likely I am to get closer to it. So the idea is you don't just score points for getting the bullseye. You score, score points for hitting the target at all. And the more that you try to get to the bullseye, the, the more likely you are to get there. So it's it's this idea of thinking about the distinction between a guess and an educated guess. And the idea is that there's almost nothing that you could guess about where there isn't an educated, you know, there isn't some sort of educated in what you're guessing about. And the thing is that the, 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 uh, more you can define the target area. In other words, the smaller you can make that target area, the better off you're going to be in terms of your ability to make really good decisions about whatever it is that you're trying to decide about. This is the archer's mindset. It's just not ever accepting that something's a guess. It's saying, look, I can get on the target. I can get on the target because I'm not playing pin the tail on the donkey, right? I'm not just walking around with a blindfold on, just like stabbing pins into the world. That's not how we make decisions. Right. I want to be like an archer. So I have to force myself to think about my guesses as educated guesses. And then what that does is essentially what I just did with the Drake question, which is how educated can I get? What are the things that I know that could help me with this? And obviously, because it was a speed round, I couldn't go Google stuff. Right. (laughs) But once I don't accept that it's a guess, maybe that gets me to go look stuff up and it makes me go try to figure some things out.
And, you know, you can do that with kind of anything, right? So, um, like, an example that, that I use is um, you have no idea what my computer is sitting on, but uh, and I won't even tell you what it's sitting on. How much do you think the thing that my computer is sitting on weighs? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so we, we could start talking about that in terms of it's, it's probably sitting on some kind of, uh, whatever your computer is on is on top of a desk of some sort. So it can't, it, it can't weigh more than what the desk can hold. Right. So an upper bound is going to be, you know, uh, 75 or a hundred pounds right. probably. Right. But the, but the lower bound is probably going to be somewhere in a, a pound or two because it needs to be sturdy enough to hold your computer. Right. And so, so this is exactly what I'm saying. So, you know, it's not negative. It's not a negative number. It's, it's not zero and it's not 10,000 pounds. Right. I mean, you actually gave a pretty good upper, you know, it's like 75 to hundred pounds. So it happens to be a stack of books. I'm going to guess it's probably about 40 pounds, um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's just to get it to the right height. Um, so, but, um, but so the point is like, you just eliminated, if you think about the total, a uh, range of things that that what things weigh in the world. Mm-hmm. You just eliminated like a huge range of those possibilities, and that's what we're trying to do when we're thinking about just you know decision making under uncertainty. Is how can we do reduce the uncertainty? And we know we can never get all the way there, right? Not usually. I mean, not not for things that aren't like two plus two equals four, or um, you know things where we have perfect information, which is just rare. But we can get a lot closer if we have this archer's mindset. If we stop playing pin the tail, tail on the donkey and just say, I'd just be guessing, let me just stab a kid at the party with the pin, right? And say, no, I actually can aim at something. And yeah. I figure out what is it that I'm aiming at and how can I make it so that I can get closer to that bullseye? But I'm gonna score points for just hitting it at all. Okay, so this archer's mindset model is fantastic, right? This idea of aiming for the bullseye, but being thoughtful enough to just think about how to get onto the target is really, really important for us. And and we have this happening in our, our world all around us, right? Where there's too much focus on the bullseye and not enough focus on what is the target. What are the upper and lower bounds of what we're trying to shoot for, basically? Try, trying to carve that out. And if we think about this from the perspective of business, how many times do we go into a corporate strategy meeting or in product development where we are so intensely focused in on making sure that we are focused on that bullseye when a different mindset of coming in and saying, we just need to hit this target. We need to make sure first off that we are getting close enough that we're gonna hit the target. I think that's a really key piece of this, particularly in these uncertain and crazy times that we don't know what's gonna happen next month. And so if you're so focused in on the, on the, on the target and the target moves, uh, you may not even really realize that and notice that. And so you really have to focus in on making sure that you're hitting that target uh, and, and understanding what those upper lower bounds are, understanding where, where to aim in general and understand how to hit those pieces. That, Kurt, that's a, that's a really great image is to think about what if the target moves and, and here you are just aiming for the bullseye, not really thinking about the scope of the target itself. You're just thinking about the bullseye. You can miss it. I, I think about time when, in product development teams where they suffer from letting great become the enemy of good. 
right? That they're so focused on, I'm not going to release this app or this or this update to the app until everything is, is, is 100% perfect. And that actually can work against us as long as we understand what the upper and lower bounds of acceptable are. Yeah, and good is is good, right? We want to hit the target. We want to hit that. It's not like we want to shoot and miss the target uh, altogether. But this idea of making sure that we always have to hit a bullseye, that can be hold us back. That can really limit us. And so we thought that was a really important part and we just wanted to talk about it. Let's go back to the book because we are here to talk about how to decide uh, your new book, which we are very excited about because we are very grateful that you've included us in conversations about this for some time. When you, it's, and what we read. I didn't just include you in conversations. You actually helped me save the project. I just, (laughs) you're really downplaying what happened here. We're, we're much better at self-deprecation than we are at really anything else. (laughs) Everybody what happened. I, so, so just, just the arc of the book. So uh, when I originally thought about the book, uh, as many of my best ideas do, I'll pretty much all of them, um, it came from conversations with other people. In this particular case, it came from conversations I had with readers of Thinking in Bets. So the way I think about Thinking in Bets is it's, it's a book that's, it's more of a why book. It's like a, a big idea book that's really talking about the influence of uncertainty in your ability to understand why things happen the way they do, right? To understand uh, what it means when you have some sort of outcome, you win a hand, you get the job, you have a happy life, or you get divorced, or you get fired, or, you know, how do we really make sense of that stuff? Um, And how does it really kind of frustrate our decisions that there isn't a one-to-one mapping between decision quality and outcome quality. And I would say that that was kind of a why book. And then toward sort of toward the end, there was a sprinkling of how, but it was mostly making the case that the way to deal with uncertainties is to accept it, to embrace it, to see it so that we're not hiding from it. And we include that in our decision process. And in particular, I would say it was a, a little bit, probably more when we think about the two sources of uncertainty, which would be luck and hidden information. I think it was a, a more, more like it was more deeply going into luck, right? What, mm. What's happening between you make a decision and then you can't control what the outcome is, right? So I had lots of conversations with readers and, and they said, really like that book, thank God. Um, but uh, how? I mean, that was big, like, how? Okay, so I get it. I, I, I'm an uncertainty fan now, like I'm, I'm into it. But how do I actually translate into that, that into a, to a really good decision process? So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like I should do something that's a little bit more of a how book. So what I originally pitched to the publisher was I'm going to do the Thinking and Bets workbook. Mm-hmm. You guys know. And this was going to be like the easiest thing on the planet to write. <laughs> right. Because it was literally going to be like, hey, look at page 31. <laughs> and here's an exercise you can do that would help you. So I sold that. I sold it as that. That's actually what I sold to the publisher. And the publisher came back to me and the editor, my editor actually is wonderful, Nikki Papadopoulos. And, you know, while I was cursing her along the way, this was a brilliant idea on her part. I don't want to take ownership of it. And she said, hey, it seems to me that we wouldn't want to limit the audience to just people who read Thinking in Bats. What do you think about doing a more how to decide kind of book, the title, Uh um, that would that would reach everybody? You know, it, it would it would really walk people through what does a good decision process look like independent of thinking and bets. 
So I immediately was like really jazzed by that idea because I thought, oh, this is really great because now I can think about someone who's like uh, 25 or 30, like super smart, wants to become a better decision maker, but just hasn't been exposed to the space. And, you know, like all of us, you know, never was taught in school, like, you know, taught a lot of trigonometry, but but nobody was teaching them, this is how you actually go about making a great decision, because it's not something, sadly, it's not something that we teach in schools. So that's why I have that nonprofit, the Alliance for mm-hmm. Decision Education. So, so the thing was that when I enthusiastically embraced that idea from Nikki, I didn't quite realize um, that, oh, this was going to present a really big problem. And the really big problem it was going to present to me was I had to both create a book that wasn't going to be a retread and boring for people who had read Thinking in Bets, but also was going to have to uh, be understandable for people who hadn't. Now, that's a really narrow alley, it turns out, that I had to kind of squeeze down. And as you guys know, when I when I produced the first chapter or two, it was a disaster. It, I, I mean, it was, uh, it didn't, as you guys said, where are you? I think that that's yeah. what you said. Where are you? This doesn't sound like you. Um, and the reason that it didn't sound like me was that I went, I just wrote this very regimented thing, just trying to sort of get through this alley. And through your help and also my editor talking to me, I think that I, I talked to you right after I got the note from my editor, like, you know, oh my God, this is crap. It was like the worst feedback <laughs> I've ever gotten on anything. And then I talked to you guys and you guys were a little more gentle, but you know, both approaches are good. Where you just said, like, find you, like, where's your voice? I don't hear you in this. Um, And I went back to the drawing board, and I think it was about uh, two weeks later, maybe, two weeks or a month later, I sent you a new draft. Yeah. And you guys were very kind to say, oh, I found you again. There you go. <laughs> um, well, but you you found yourself. You you did find yeah. your voice in here. And that is one of the things I think that that shines through in this book. Uh, because both it, it's it's this workbook, right? So it is this like how to you have exercises sprinkled throughout this that people can go in and and do and yet you still find a way to to convey this information uh in a in a way that is accessible for people uh, that makes sense that you know i mean we've i, I re- i've read much of this already because you've sent me you know, a drafts of this and I'm, I'm reading through it again and i'm like going, oh I, this is good i need to make note of this and i kept making i have Pages and pages of of orange sticky notes throughout the book because uh, yeah. all these insights that that I've gotten from it. So well, that's, um, that's really nice. And I, I just want to let me just say, like, I'm kind of loath to call it a workbook because I think that the solution and, that I found was to stop thinking of it as a workbook. And, and it, that's a really good point because yeah. it, it really isn't. It's a, it's a book with exercises in it. Yeah, because you know? that, that was the way that I found found my way out of the whole problem was this isn't a workbook. Uh, this is a book that's really exploring these ideas. And, and what it did for me was it, it it allowed me, it freed me up to cover completely brand new ground. So this this book, while it opens in the same place as Thinking in Bats, because I have to kind of talk about how are you dealing with experience, it, it pivots out of there pretty quickly into a lot of new ground. And what ended up happening, which was super fun, was that it ended up being, I feel like, much more of an exploration of the problem of imperfect information. Mm. So I feel like thinking in bets, I was really, it was much more about luck, you know, mm-hmm. that you you make a decision and then there's all sorts of different ways that that can turn out. And of course that, that, that topic is covered well in this book, but it goes really deeply into this problem that, you know, there's stuff, you know, and stuff you don't know. 
And the stuff you know fits on like the head of a pin. And the stuff you don't know is like the size of the universe. And, you know, not that this, I, I talked about this in Thinking in Bets, but what I feel like is that the ratio got flipped. Mm. Right. There was a little of this problem of the, what do you know and what don't you know? And how are you how are you exploring that universe of stuff you don't know? There was a little bit of that in thinking in bets and lots of this kind of luck problem. And in this book, there's a little bit of the luck problem and lots and lots of this informational problem. How are we getting better? Because it's the only way we can do it of exploring that universe of stuff that we don't know, because we have to get better at that, because otherwise we can't deal with the belief problem because we the two problems we have are with our beliefs is some stuff that we believe is inaccurate well you can only figure that out by going into that universe of stuff that you don't know and also there's just a lot of stuff we don't know which exists over in the universe of stuff that we don't know and so i'm just trying to give people tools for how do you start interacting with that universe in a way that is less biased that causes you to think about it more objectively and incorporate it more into the models of stuff, you know, uh, uh, the models that you have of the world. And that's really where we started, right? With this archer's mindset and the target. Mm -hmm. When I say, don't say I'd just be guessing. It's an educated guess and it's your job to get as much educated into that guess as possible. That's the argument that I'm making. You yeah. have to go be thinking about what all this stuff that you don't know and start to try to, to, get that into into the stuff that you do know you have to start transforming it and i feel like that's kind of what this book is about so the nice thing was is through your wonderful guidance and help from my editor and whatnot i kind of found my way into well you know what there's this whole other place that i can go which is in a lot of ways makes sense for what i was trying to do because when you think of the how you have no control over luck mm. Now you have control over the decisions you make in the in the sense that I could choose an option where uh, bad luck is going to intervene less of the time, right? That I can do that, but I don't. I, if it's going to happen ten percent of the time, it's going to happen ten percent of the time. <laughs> the thing that you do have control over when you're thinking about your decision process is this hidden information problem, is the imperfection of, of what we know. And so naturally, because this was a more how book, I think it sent me into that direction more naturally. And, you know, 90% of the stuff in this book, I think is is relatively new. Yeah. Um, you know, compared to thinking in bets. And so I'm, I'm, I'm now excited about something that I was in quite a bit of despair about. Initially. <laughs> All right, everybody. This is really an important point, right? What we don't know is so much larger than what we do know. Yeah, absolutely right. If, if we're not giving some serious consideration to uh, in our in our decision making, especially at work, right? I, I'm I'm kind of going back to the strategic planning teams. It's everybody's sitting sitting around the table and they're saying we're doing this, we're doing this, and then we're going to do this. And and how much of that conversation revolves around well, what if this happens? Or are we taking into consideration some factors that? we're not aware of uh, some competitive things that the competitors might be working on. Yeah. You know, it, we, if we're not having those discussions, we're, we're kind of missing the boat, right? We, we need to take an, uh, an epistemic humility perspective here, right? Steve yeah. Wendell talked about that. when we talked with him, this idea of, you know, assuming a lot of what we know is wrong, 
and or it's just we're we're in the dark in so much that that the light that we're shining is just a pen light in this vast uh, world of darkness. Right. And right. we can only shine on so much and there's so much that's still uh, blind to us. And so understanding that can help us in anticipating or particularly putting plans in place that will maybe account for that so that when something pops out of the dark into our little halo of light, we're not as freaked out by it as we might have been otherwise. Yeah, and we can't consider everything. So using some upper and lower boundaries can help us build some more likely scenarios. You know, one of the things that I loved about this is the popular story of positive thinking has been you know, overriding us for generations, right? And, and and you say, it's time to put an end to that. Let's go with some negative thinking. Why is that? Yeah, so because, so, so let me just be clear. I, I don't think that you're supposed to have negative goals. Like <laughs> you should want to be healthier and happier and get a great job and meet the love of your life and all that stuff. Like, I think everybody should have positive goals, of course. Nor am I saying that it's correct to think you're going to fail. I I don't think that's right either. But the problem with positive thinking is that it doesn't make that distinction. What it says is set a positive goal, imagine success along the route. So you have to visualize success. And the kind of like, I would say the the wackiest instantiation of that particular literature is the secret. with an Oprah book club recommendation somehow. Um, It basically says like your thoughts have a magnetic quality to them. Yes. And so uh, if you think about traffic, you'll end up in traffic uh, because your thoughts are magnetic. And so they'll attract the things that you think about to them. This is super wacky. Um, And then also they actually go backwards and say, if you're in traffic, it means that you must've been thinking about it. Right. So, I mean, it becomes very, you know, I mean, it's the anti-scientific hypothesis because um, it's, unpro- you know, you can't disprove it. But the thing is that while while that's kind of wacky, by the way, you always know, you should watch out for a book when there are no actual scientists in it. The people quoted in there have titles like visionary and metaphysicist, which <laughs> just means not a physicist. Um, <laughs> instead of M-E-T, it should be N-O-T-A. Not a physicist. Not a physicist. Um, but anyway, so, but the thing is like, I know, I know that that seems really wacky, but if you actually think about it in the context of that literature, it's not that wacky. They go the extra mile and actually say what, how your negative or positive thoughts might cause success or failure. But the idea that there's a causal relationship between the two is actually non-controversial in that literature. Think about success, success will come. Think about failure because the obverse is implied. Think about yeah. failure, failure will happen. So what what I'm saying is that's completely absurd because the only way to succeed is to imagine how you might fail along the route. Now, notice that's different than thinking you will fail, but you have to think about what are the obstacles that might lie in the path? What are the things that are getting in in my way? If I were to fail at achieving this goal, why would that have happened? And you can think about both things that have to do with your own decision-making and also things that have to do with luck, which I broadly include like decisions other people make that you don't have influence over. Like if Vladimir Putin makes a decision, I have no influence over that. So that that's a matter of luck from my perspective, right? So so the, the analogy I give is basically this. Look, we've used paper maps forever. 
and we've used positive thinking forever, but we threw the paper maps out. Why do we throw the paper maps out? Because they show a destination and then a clear road along the way. And how is that helpful to you? I mean, it helps you sort of figure out like I should exit here. And I remember when I was younger, you'd write it all down and you'd follow those directions, but you had no idea where there was going to be a speed trap. You had no idea where there might be an accident or heavy traffic or a road closure or any of those things. Why is Waze such a popular map, uh, such a popular like mapping app? Because it tells you where things are going to go wrong. Yeah. That is why. It's like, don't go on that road. You'll never make it there on time. So I'm going to route you around it. And that's the beauty of the power of negative thinking, which is if I can identify the ways that things might go wrong, if I could have a ways for decision making, and this is way to get there, I can see the points that I might fail. And then I can figure out how to deal with them before I actually run into the traffic and I'm stuck. Yeah. Now I can figure out how can I avoid it? What could I do to reduce the probability of that happening? Yeah. And it's it's it literally will increase your success despite yeah. what what is implied in the positive thinking literature that having these kinds of thoughts about the way that you might fail would increase the chances that you fail. It's quite the opposite. It yeah. will increase the chances that you succeed. There there was a uh, and I can't remember what what show I heard it on, but it was Michael Phelps's coach. And uh, when he was swimming, they they drilled it into him: envision winning and envision all the perfect things. Um, but Michael Phelps, being Michael Phelps, uh, ended up like he got bored with that, so he started envisioning what could go wrong, all of these different things. And he was in one of the races in this, I believe, it was the Sydney Olympics. And his goggles came off in, I think it was the butterfly. And for most people that would have just, you know, in Olympic, you know, swimming, it's tenths of seconds, hundreds of seconds differences. And that would just be enough to, to throw him off. And he actually won. And afterwards he said, well, no, it was one of the things I had envisioned. I envisioned what would happen and how would I do that? And so I'd already figured out what I needed to do. And I just went and did it. And, and so oh it is God, exactly I that. Story. I wish I had it in my book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I have uh, the problem with a book. You can't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's down. You can't. Oh, it's just, you don't know where the roadblocks are. What you a know? Great that is so yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's a really good example, right? Like you're going to, you know, this is how you end up reactive. This is how you end up, you know, look, when bad luck is going to happen, right? We can make great decisions. And some percentage of the time, they're not going to work out. And if we, first of all, aren't prepared for when things go wrong and already have a plan in place, the likelihood that we're going to make good plans in the wake of the bad outcome is going to just be lower. And we're not going to have any way of thinking about it in advance and saying like, my goggles might fi- fall off. What are, what are the ways in which I could reduce the probability of that happening? I guess without causing my eyes horrible pain from them being <laughs> super, but but you know, but you can say like, let me try different goggles. Let me see how I could stress test them. Oh. How hard is it to get them off my face? Like you could you you can now go and figure out what are the goggles that that's least likely to happen to, and then you can uh, figure out if it does happen, what am I going to do? You know, and now there's all this stuff that you can do proactive proactively, which you can't do if you're just going, you know. I'm just envisioning winning the race. Okay, great. My perfect form and everything. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right so. exactly. All right. The Michael Phelps story is really interesting. And, and of course, I, I had to go back out and, and look up some of the stuff. And so Michael Phelps does do a whole lot of visualization in his practice. And one of the interesting pieces is that for months before competition, 
instead of actually being in the pool all day practicing, Michael would spend two hours a day visualizing things. And his visualization practice would be such that he would visualize the things that were good, right? Like what I need to be doing, and then also what it would be like to win and what is going to be that perfect thing. But as part of this, he also visualized a lot of things that could go wrong, like we talked about. But what is interesting in, in the conversation and all the research that, that he's done on this is that visualization is really uh, descriptive. It's about how things taste and feel, the sounds that he's hearing. He's visualizing all of this to get himself into that thing. And again, this goes back with this idea of negative thinking and really looking at the possibilities of what may or may not happen and looking at all of the potential downfalls, doing a pre-mortem of this. It reminds me of Elizabeth Schoenfeld's uh, work as well when she took uh, high school basketball players and broke them into three groups. And the, the first group, uh, she said, shoot baskets, shoot or shoot free throws for an hour. And the second group, she said, just go off and do whatever you want to do. And the third group, she said, sit on the bench and think about uh shooting free throws you know visualize shooting those free throws and and of course what happened was that the ones who actually sat on the bench and thought about it performed better than yeah. those who were actually shooting so it actually got them if you sit and have to think about something for an hour man that's a lot of time you've got to start thinking about well what am i doing when i do a particular thing how am i holding my hands how how where are my feet how much am i bending my knees what should I be doing? And that gets us thinking about something is a great way of, of actually doing your work, you know? Sometimes, and sometimes it's just a way of not doing your work. Like that's what I usually end up doing, right? But this idea of, of taking a look and visualizing the entirety of things. So it's not just going, here's all the good things that are gonna happen to us. And here's all the great things that if we do this, but looking and visualizing things that saying, all right, here are the things that could go wrong and how do we respond in those moments and having that work of understanding that or at least visualizing that can really help you when those situations do arise and hopefully they don't but we know for a fact that sometimes they do and those sometimes can be really important. Yeah. So the post, the, the, the pre-mortem is really critical, basically. This this tool of thinking through these all these you know potential outcomes is a really powerful, powerful tool. And I know that Michael Phelps is a great example. Lolly Daskal is a is a big fan. She's a she's a big uh, you know Twitter uh, user. She wrote about uh, this kind of thinking uh, you know ten years ago or so. And of course, Olympic planners. I think about Olympic planners. Holy cow! When they're planning for the Winter Olympics, is there going to be enough snow? <laughs> Is it going yeah. to be enough? Oh, they've got to think through a lot of alternatives that uh, that will help them execute uh, at a much higher rate. Well, and again, it, it, it's this identification of what those potential obstacles could be. Not saying that those obstacles are going to be there, but understanding what they could be. And again, it goes back to this idea that we, there's a lot more things that we don't know than we do know. And so just trying to at least expand that universe to include some of those unknowns is really important. So the first part of the book is a lot about thinking uh, the resulting, which again was brought up within thinking in bets. Um, and so why is that such a 
difficult thing for people to overcome? And why is it something that we really need to actually, first off, for those listeners, you know, if you haven't already listened to the numerous podcasts we've had with you, um, because we've talked about this before, but what is resulting? And then why, why is it important for people to understand? Yeah. So, so resulting is just really simply, um, I know the outcome. And so therefore, if I know the outcome, I know how good the decision was. So uh, if something went wrong, the decision that preceded it must have been poor. Uh, And if something goes well, the decision that preceded it must have been awesome. So there's a lot of reasons why we can't overcome that, but uh, you know, I, why we have trouble overcoming it. Cause I yes. do think we can make it better. Um, I think one of the main reasons is that uh, we want the world to make sense. And while when we're sort of thinking about the future, it's a little bit easier for us to imagine all the different ways that things could turn out, you know, as you're sort of imagining, you know, well, if I go to this job, maybe it'll work out or maybe we'll be so-so, or maybe it won't work out, or maybe I'll get fired or maybe I'll quit or maybe I'll get promoted, um, you know, and we can still kind of, we can sort of hold that the idea that the future is sort of indeterminate when we're making the decision. Once we know the outcome, it just feels like it had to have happened that way. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of our brain, Michael Mobison talks about this a lot, that's called the interpreter that starts to try to create a causal story. So we want to link those together in a way that's causal. And we know that the thing that we don't like as human beings is for things to be random. And this is a lot of why, for example, people believe in conspiracy theories, that we'd rather have a complicated story that makes things feel like there was some purpose to them, as opposed to just it's random and you were in the wrong building on the wrong day in September and Bush didn't do 9-11. You know what I mean? It's just like it's really hard for us to just sort of allow that stuff happens. So, and we try to create these causal explanations. So if something bad happens, what's the, what's the right causal explanation for that? Well, someone made a bad decision, you know? And I I think that part of it is that it makes us, it allows us to feel like we have more control, right? When we think about like the illusion of control or status quo bias, or so, you know, there's all these biases that just sort of have to do with us feeling like we're, we're a little bit more the masters of our own destiny that we are. And I don't think we let with like as human beings, the idea that I might get in a car and then, you know, a semi might hit me. So there's two things that, that really strike us here, right? We are wired to look for certainty and that it is most common that we're going to attribute our own failings to bad luck and other people's failings to the lack of skill, focus, determination, et cetera, right? And, we, and frankly, we've just got to get over that. Right. <laughs> we just have to get over that. That does not help us. Well, and it's, it's really, the, the interesting part is that we, we attribute our own failings to bad luck, but our successes are never attributed to luck, right? No, it's all the hard work I do. It's never because I got lucky. Um, although in reality, that, that happens as much, if not more, than, than the bad luck. Everybody, to, to not just us, but everyone around us, right? That luck is, relatively speaking, applied evenly. You know, a coincidence, all those kinds of things. Uh, so, so why not just give people the grace of, well, maybe they had some bad luck. Right. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that if we do that, then we can actually start looking to see the reality of the situation and we can understand why things are happening and not just assume that they're happening because of reason X or reason Y. And that lends itself to better decision making 
in the long run so that you can learn from this outcome and learn from the work that has gone into this and work and learn from all of these different components. Yeah. So taking it back to like strategic planning, what if rather than the conversation going along the lines of, oh, we don't have to worry about next year because the markets are on track for a really good year. What if the discussion were more like, what if the markets tank? What will we do then? What might we do? How can we build some thoughtful consideration into our strategic plan, considering the possibility that the markets might tank or that there might be some major interruption? And that that the extra time and effort that it would take us to do that could yield tremendous results when that happens. Or it, of course, if that if that happens. Right. All right. So uh, the next part of the discussion with Annie uh, leads us into a discussion about implications. Playing off of that, how you know, because we talked about luck, right? And you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time or on, on the vice versa, you, you, you started a restaurant and you got the, you know, the perfect lucky placement of where the location is and you succeeded. Um, uh, so how I do we determine in New Zealand? <laughs> there you go. Right now, Auckland and, and there, yeah. there it is. But what is it? How, how can we how can we notice luck and and then how does that get into the self-narrative that you talk about in in the book about uh our self-narrative is so tied into us being successful and skilled and so we have a motivated reasoning to say no that wasn't luck is my hard work that made this so successful so what, what can we do in order to help you know take those two pieces and and make sure that we're really um you know, noticing what is our skill and, and, and what is up to luck and so that we can make better yeah. decisions moving forward. So first of all, you bring up an, a good point, which is uh, resulting is not evenly applied. Mm. So uh, we're very good at resulting about other people's crap. <laughs> 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 but when it comes to our own decisions, we're perfectly willing to allow luck as an explanation, but only for our failures. Mm. So uh, when bad things happen to us, um, it is because of bad luck. And when good things happen to us, it is because we are awesome. And this ties into self-serving bias and also the fundamental attribution error. Yeah. So, um, you know, which is all just like, when are you saying something is situational, which would be an, a luck explanation versus when are you saying something is dispositional? So, uh, which would be your own awesome skill. Basically, what, what we want to do is realize that there, we can think about a, a two by two where you have good decision, bad decision. So you have your decision quality and then you have good outcome, bad outcome. Um, and we can think about populating all four of those cells. So good, good would be an earned reward. Um, good, bad would be bad luck. Um, bad, good would be dumb luck. And <laughs> bad, bad would be just desserts. Just mm. dessert. So um, in that case, what we, can, what we know is that our life is, those four cells are very well populated in our lives. They're also very well populated in everybody else's life as well. But depending on what type of decision we're trying to analyze, we, we selectively uh, use different boxes as the explanation. So when we're resulting, we're just looking at the good, good, bad, bad. Mm -hmm. Every, everything's an earned reward or just desserts. When we're thinking about ourselves, everything is earned reward or bad luck. Okay. So the key is 
to start exploring all of those cells. And to say, really, to dig down into that and recognize that you need to uh, allow that any of those explanations might be so. Um, so I've got some exercises in the book that can help people do that. Um, the, the, and one of the things that I really recommend is that in particular, if you see decisions that are in that good, good category, that you must really dig into those because it doesn't mean that they're best good mm. category. In other words, it doesn't mean it's the best decision you could have made. And if you just sort of leave it be, you're actually going to lose a lot of learning opportunities there. Now, one of the reasons why I think that we have these patterns when it comes to ourselves, and you can see this in businesses as well, right? There's lots of post-morteming, but not a lot of, woo, we did really unexpectedly well, better get in a room about that one and figure out why our prediction was wrong. Um, I haven't found a company yet that's doing that. Um, but I think the reason why is that a bad outcome feels bad. Yeah. So if we go and explore it, we're kind of free rolling. If it turns out that we made a bad decision, well, we're really no worse off than we were before because we already felt like crap about the whole situation. But if we find out that actually it was bad luck, boom, right? Now we feel pretty good about something that was kind of was making us sad before. But now you can see the opposite if we look at good decisions. Why aren't we exploring you know, our good outcomes rather? Because we already feel pretty good about it. So if we find out it was a good decision, the state of our world hasn't changed. But what if we find out it had to do with bad, just good luck? Yeah. Now we just turned into this thing we felt pretty good about and we turned it into something that we're not very happy about. So there's uneven reward. It's like, a, it's actually opposite, equal and opposite reward. If we look into the bad outcomes, it's a way, it's an escape hatch. It, it allows us to have a way out of the room. But when we uh, look at our good outcomes, we don't want that way out of the room. We want the door to remain closed. <laughs> so we won't actually look at it. So, you know, the way, I mean, the way to solve it is to actually really explore those four cells. And then also to really spend some time trying to really think through, okay, this, this result happened, but what were the other things that really could have happened? Because if you're not exploring those things, it, it's very hard to find the luck and stuff. Yeah. You, you mentioned free rolling within there. Just really quick. I know we are, we're getting close on time here, but what is free rolling for our listeners? One of my favorite topics. I wrote a paper on it with Cass Sunstein. I, I uh, love yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. We, yeah. Tim and I have actually been using free rolling uh, just the concept since we've talked about this with you before, but explain yeah, it for our yeah. listeners. Um, so uh, basically you can think about free rolling as uh, if you make a decision and the worst thing happens, if you're no worse off than you were before you made the decision, it would be considered a free roll. So, um, so there's actually a really good example of a free roll around right now, and it's a mask. Why, why are masks free rolls? Well, because we know what the harm is that coming, comes from wearing a mask, and it's like none. I mean, bad breath and you're slightly hot. Um, although that might be good in the winter. That might, uh, there you go. So that might turn into foggy, foggy glasses. There foggy you go. Glasses, right. So there's, you know, you're not, despite what some people say, you're not going to get carbon dioxide poisoning from wearing a mask. Um, I can prove that because uh, surgeons wear a mask and I don't want my surgeon to have carbon dioxide poisoning while they're doing surgery on me. Um, so there you go. But we know that not a lot, you know, there's really kind of nothing bad. It's like if you, let's say that you wore the mask and it turned out it didn't work at all. You're not really worse off than you were before. But if it turns out it does work well, then you're way better off 
than you were before. So basically, it's a decision that has all this upside potential and really no downside potential. So you're looking for an asymmetry between the downside potential and upside potential. So whenever there's a really big asymmetry such that the downside potential is very limited, can't really do any harm, you're in a free roll situation. Now, the interesting thing with a mask is that one of the places that you'll end up finding free roll situations a lot is when you take a, uh, an, a solution that is very well known, but you're applying it to a novel situation. Mm. So the reason why we have asymmetrical knowledge about the downside of mass versus the upside of mass, right? Because we don't know exactly how much it helps. We just kind of know it does. But we're learning more, but but we don't we don't know exactly how much it prevents spread. We just know it does prevent spread. But we know a lot about the downside is because doctors have been using masks forever. Mm-hmm. So uh, so this happens when you take something and you have a novel application of it. Um, but you can also just have you know free rolls because like asking somebody out on a date is a free roll. Like if they say no, who cares? Yeah. Right. But if they say yes, it might be the love of your life. Right. So we we get into these situations all the time. Um, I think that what's really interesting is some of the arguments that I've seen against masks are really missing this free roll point. And they're focusing on the uncertainty about what the upside is. They're saying, well, we don't really know how well it works, so therefore we shouldn't use them. Whereas if you actually say, but it can do no harm, then and you find the free free roll in there, then you can see pretty quickly, like, oh, no, this is something that we really should be doing. Uh, So what are the two things uh, in the book that you absolutely want uh, our listeners uh, to, to or, or the readers that, that, that read it uh, to take away? What, what are the two okay. things? Here's the two things. Thing number one is uh, it might be, it might seem really overwhelming to think about what a really robust decision process will be, but the counterintuitive thing is that mostly you're making decisions way too slowly. Mm. It's just that you don't have a good idea of which decisions you should go fast on and which decisions you should go slow on. So we tend to go fast on some pretty consequential decisions, but slow on things like ordering from a menu. So I have literally a whole chapter devoted to why thinking about the way, uh, thinking about decisions the way that I'm recommending will actually mostly speed you up. It's going to help you really overcome, you know, what's known as analysis paralysis. So that's number one is that, so you need to know what a really robust decision process looks like in order to know when you can speed up. And that's kind of true of everything, right? Like you, we can all remember what it was like when we first learned how to drive. Yeah. Right. I mean, slow and deliberate. And you had to think about where's the pedal and where's the gas and and whatnot. And sometimes uh, that kind of thing is really important, but other times you just kind of want to go and avoid the deer. And um, so anyway, chapter seven is really just literally all about how do you speed your decisions up? So that's number one. The second thing, because you only gave me two. You can go three if you if you have extra time here. <laughs> here, here here's the second thing that I, I hope people really take away from this book. When you're thinking about how, how am I interacting with the universe of stuff that I don't know, it's not just like what's the information that you're looking up. You know, it's although that's important. It's not just what are the news sources that you're choosing to go read and are you sort of getting a variety. Well, that, that that's that's all you know, it's also important as well. But the thing that I really want people to understand is that how you actually interact with the world, how you interact with other people actually really has a big effect on how much you're actually colliding with different perspectives. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that's really important to understand is that 
two people can look at the exact same information. Like literally they can agree on the facts and they can come to very different conclusions about those facts. And that's because people have different models of the world. I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, you know, when we think about financial markets, it's really competing models, right? So it's really helpful to you when you're thinking about how to better define that target that you're trying to hit to get the perspectives of other people because they tend to discipline a lot of the biases that we have. Um, you know, Daniel Kahneman talks about inside outside view. I actually have a whole chapter on inside outside view that the inside view is like our own perspectives, our own models, and it's sort of driving the way we're thinking about the world. And that's where things like confirmation bias live. Mm -hmm. so we want to collide with the outside view, part of which is how to, how do other people view the world? How do other people view this? Would they view the situation that I'm in? So we naturally realize, I think intuitively we know, okay, we'd like to go get feedback from other people and that that will be helpful. But the problem is the way we ask for the feedback gives us the illusion that we've gotten a really good opinion from them while not actually having gotten a really good opinion from them because we always are leading the witness. Mm. So here's the big takeaway. This is the big number two for me. If you want to know what somebody thinks, don't tell them what you think first. I cannot emphasize that enough. And I think that people will find if you actually keep this in your head and track during the day, how often, if it's in your business or in your life or whatever, you're asking for somebody's opinion, are you having that instinct or are you offering your own opinion on the matter first? Because I, th and you'll see it's like every time. And um, I think it's because we think it's important data mm -hmm. that I need to tell you what I think about it so that you could give me your opinion. But what I would like to do actually is to put you into as close to the same state of knowledge that I was in when I formed my opinion prior to eliciting yours. And this is in simple ways. Right. Like if I want to, I, I don't, I don't know if you watched Perry Mason or not. I did. Um, but if I want to know what you thought of it, I should not tell you, I should just say, well, Hey, what'd you think of Perry Mason? Mm -hmm. I should not tell you all my thoughts on it, which are vast. Right? <laughs> I, I really loved the backstory. You know, Raymond Burr was such a goody two shoes. I like that Perry Mason is flawed in this version. I thought it was really interesting. I think the ending was quite interesting, which I won't spoil for people. Um, when you really see like th this is a complicated character who has very a very complicated moral compass and everybody does in the show. I think that's great. But if I told you all of that stuff before I asked for your opinion, I hardly think that I would get your true opinion because I'm going to influence you. Yeah. does And I think that even comes out and, and correct me if I'm wrong in in kind of indirect ways. So the, the way, for instance, I have three brand logos that we're looking at and I have a, my, have my favorite, but I want my team's opinion on it. And I, and I know that that's coming here, up. Here are the logos. I really love this one. What do you guys think? Well, or, or, or I I'm describing them here. We have this logo. It's this here. We have this logo. It's this here. We have this logo and, and look and see how it draws out this. And you exactly not even intentionally like saying, I like this one better, but even in the ink, you know, your, the way your voice sounds, the, the, the words that you use to, to yeah. describe it, the emotions that people can feel. Cause we're, we're always looking to understand what other people are thinking. And so, and when we're looking to understand what other people are thinking, generally what we're looking is to have our own beliefs certified. Mm -hmm. that, that's the thing that we have to remember. That's the inside view problem. Uh, what you point out is exactly right. Like we can be thinking that we're not offering our opinion, but the way we ask the question 
is is offering our opinion. I, I have an example in there that's from my own life. My my child was in a fight with one of uh, his friends, and he came to me and he said, "You know, don't you think that Kevin is a jerk? Kevin is not his real name." <laughs> uh, he said, "I actually, you didn't say. Don't, I, I don't you think?" He said, "He said, um, I, Kevin's such a jerk, and all my friends agree with me." That's what he said to me, and I immediately said, "So, how did you ask your friends their opinion? Did you say what do you think of Kevin, or did you say I think Kevin's a jerk? What do you think?" You know, and and he was like, "Well, obviously, it was the second. Really, he he thought he was asking for their opinion. He didn't realize that the frame that he was offering, and there's all sorts of different ways that we can frame it. You know, the classic would be if we're trying to get someone's opinion about the efficacy of a medicine, you know, and it's got a you know, you know, eight hundred people who take it will live, and two hundred will die." If we, if we want a negative opinion, we'll say, well, I have this medicine, 200 people out of 1,000 will die. Mm-hmm. We'll take it. If I really like the medicine, I might say, I have this medicine, 800 pe- people out of 1,000 will live. So there's all sorts of ways in which we can sort of get our opinion across without even knowing that we're doing it. So the only way to protect against that is send the three logos out to everybody on the team independently, not in a room, and say, what do you think? Mm. Yeah. Period. That's yeah. it. Because by the way, that's what you did. That's how yeah. you formed your opinion. You saw the three options and you formed an opinion about it. So you have to give everybody else the opportunity to do that as well. And you're going to be a better decision maker for it because you're going to hear unexpected things. Yeah. You're going to hear different perspectives. You're going to, you know, th- people are going to point out like, I mean, uh, you know, there have been disasters, for example, where someone didn't just happen to see that a logo, you know, looked uh, like a swastika, you know, or something, mm-hmm. or, or like a, a private part or something like that, right? <laughs> Where they couldn't quite see the resemblance. And then someone else says, you know, <laughs> if you look at that, kind of looks like a swastika. I think my, people might look at that and think it looks like a swastika, you know, yeah. and then you and then you can't unsee it. And you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, thank God somebody pointed that out to me because now I'm not putting that logo that looks like a swastika so why is your gut such a bad decision-making tool? It is not a tool. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious because it's exactly, not. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, and, and Yeah. Well, so let's think about what a tool is, right? And I actually, in the introduction, I, I just say, here's the definition yep. of a tool. Um, so it's an instrument that you can use to accomplish a task where it can do that reliably, so it, if I use it to accomplish a task, it's going to come to the same answer each time, mm-hmm. right? Every time I get that screw in the wall, it's going to, you know, when I take out a screwdriver, the appropriate one, I can screw the it into the wall and I can do that reliably. I can explain it and I can give it to somebody else and explain it to them such that they could use it the same way. Love that. Yes. So this is what a tool is. So we know your gut isn't that thing because I, I can't. We know, like, I mean, this is a lot, Kahneman talks about this, right? That when you're making these kinds of gut decisions, we know that if I get you in the morning or at the night or, you know, in a different mood or whatever, like your gut's going to tell you something different. So the gut isn't reliable. It's very, it's very noisy. Tells you all sorts of different things. So I'm not going to be able to reliably use it for the same person. I, for purpose, I can't explain it. By definition, when you ask me, why did you make that decision? I say, oh, my gut told me so. Well, that's not an explanation. We can't deconstruct that. We can't sort of figure out whether that was a good judgment or not. 
And I certainly, this would be gross. I can't give you my gut to use. Mm. That is gross. Would you stop bringing up gross things? I know. Like, <laughs> let me give you my gut. So I can't, the problem, in, and this is particularly true, like if you're working on teams and the whole point is to make the team stronger, one would hope. If I, in a leadership position or as the subject matter expert or, or whatever, someone, who, someone who's coming to you for my opinion, say, well, my gut tells me this. I have not helped you to make a similar decision. Like, so the interesting thing is it's not that your gut doesn't ever get you to a high quality decision. Uh, if, if high quality is a decision that's going to give you good, positive, expected value, right? Of, of course it can get you there. Um, but if your goal is a high quality decision is one that has a process that you can examine, look at like an object, and that I can then teach you to implement as well, which is certainly what we would like on teams, a, a gut is a complete failure. It never gets you to a high quality decision in that case, right? Not if we use that definition. Even if my gut is getting me to great places, you know, sort of what on the surface looks like great places, I can't help you get to those same great places. Okay, so this got a bit convoluted, but we want to just summarize what the three key points that Annie was talking about are, okay? So the first thing is a robust decision process can help you live a more successful life. That's that's really critical. Very critical. So the second thing is understand that there's a lot more that we don't know than we do know, <laughs> right? You know, let, let's just make sure that we remember that. And then the third thing is, if you want to know what someone thinks, don't tell them what you think first. All right. And, well, and, and another big takeaway, I think, for you and me on this, Tim, is that, look, your gut is not a tool. All right. right. Don't think about your gut decision making as a tool. It, it's there. There's an emotional response, but it is not a tool. A tool has to be consistently, right? Be, be able to be used consistently. And your gut is way off on multiple different things. Not saying that it's not important, just don't think of it as a really good decision-making tool. Do you have any suggestions for when you're working with somebody on a team and they come in and it potentially might be your boss who says, yeah, but my gut tells me this. How, how do you overcome that? How do you, it, it, are there tools that you can bring or methods to address yeah. Somebody who comes in with, well, my gut, I, I know this is true because my gut tells me. So there's there's a few things that you can do, all of which are really good to wrap into your own decision process. So one is kind of what we did with the the Drake example at the beginning, which is try to start to think about what would have to be true of the world in order for this, for his gut to be, or her gut to get them there. Um, and then be curious about those. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. it seems to me that for that to be true, these other things would have to be true. So I'd love to explore that and understand how you came to the idea that um, Drake could have released 200 songs in his career, right? And now I have to actually, I'm and you're just being curious. So the, the key is not, not to attack them and say, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not gonna accept your gut. As a leader, you could do that to someone who you work with and say, gut isn't a reasonable explanation. Like, let's try to walk through it. But obviously it's a little bit harder to do that in reverse to, to leadership, but you can be curious. Basically you can say, I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? 
And to not argue and say, but you haven't thought about this way or this isn't whatever, but to just keep saying, I don't understand. Mm. Right. So, and one of the things, as you're saying, I don't understand is to think about those other things that must be true. Right. So for example, if someone just says, my gut is that uh, Google is going to go, is going to be a better, is a better stock to buy than Amazon. Think about what needs to be true of Google. Right. So versus Amazon. So you have to say, so I just want to understand, does that, does that mean like, do you think that Amazon is going to go down? Do you think it's going to go up, but just not as much up as Google? Can you help me to understand why you think that Google is going to go up more than Amazon? Mm-hmm. You know, is there something that I need to know about like price to book or, uh, you know, revenues or other markets that they might be going into? Like, I just want to understand how you, and if you just go from that standpoint of, I just would like to understand. I would like you to convey the knowledge to me. And I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I just want to understand. Generally, then they have to start to un- sort of examine that and break it down in a way that's going to get you the component parts. And yeah. what's wonderful about that is sometimes they're going to be like, whoops, I don't actually. <laughs> Drake doesn't, couldn't have 200 top right. 10. Right. Like, you know, that's the thing. Like, you know, if they're like, I think it. 200 top 10 hits, you can be like, well, so I just want to understand, like, so I want to understand, like, cause I, I think I, I don't know much about Drake. You can say that, right? Yeah. How many songs has he produced in his career? Yeah. Right. And if they say 150, you're like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> so how many does he do a year? All right. How many yeah. years has he been out? So again, yeah, unpacking some of the things that you're just talking about. You're like, I'm just trying to understand here. So would it, would it be helpful? And again, this is conjecture. I think everybody that context and how the relationship goes, but to that point of the, the Drake thing, can you bring in an element of saying, well, you know, the Beatles only had 30 of these. And so you're saying Drake is, or is that more accusatory? As yeah, opposed so to- you don't, so the key, so gen, look, if you have, if you have a great process, I would have already discovered that you and Tim have a disagreement about this. Mm. Because I would have shown you the advertising logos prior to us getting in a room. And I would have found out that Tim thinks that number two is amazing. And you think that number three is amazing. Okay. So if we had done that, if we had done that work, which would be better, then I can ask Tim to to just convey why he believes what he does. And then you would convey why you believe what you do. So there wouldn't have to be anything that sounds accusatory. Because I would say to you, well, Tim, why do you think that Drake has 200? And, and we would, you know, let him say his piece and then you would get to say, well, here's how I sort of came to it, to my idea why I think he has fewer than that. I know that the Beatles have this many and I was doing it against that, you know, because you get to offer your rationale. And now it's not an argument between the two of you. It's just both of you conveying your rationale for what you believe. Okay. Yeah, it really so, focuses on the data. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, so it's, and and by the way, if you're a good facilitator of those conversations, if it does start to get into that sort of interrupting, but you didn't think about it this way, stuff that conversations can go, the facilitator should be, should be stopping that and saying, well, no, this is just to give Tim his chance. Just let him explain, Kurt, you're going to have your chance in a second to give your reasoning for what you believe. But I know Tim's an idiot, so why would I want to listen to him? So there you go. Sometimes, sometimes that idiot. No, because because 
Subject matter experts need this more than anybody because subject matter experts get really deeply entrenched in their models of the world. And they're more likely, as we know from Phil Petlock, to start pulling information down into their subject matter expertise trench. Yeah. So, oh. so it's really good when someone who's quote unquote an idiot is like, I don't get it. You know, I mean, I, I talk in the book about get the sort of, but why, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the example is like, my kid says to me, why is the sky blue? And like, I'm fancy because I was in a PhD program where part of what you were studying was perception. And I go, oh, you know, I give the child version of of light refraction. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll do it. Anyway, so uh, it's, you know, the sky's not blue. It's all the colors of the rainbow, but the air only lets us see the blue stuff. And then my child goes, but why? And I'm like, (laughs) now I got to go look it up. So it's helpful, even if you are the expert in the room, because I'm certainly more of an expert on it than a five-year-old to, to actually get sort of pushed on that by the person who's an idiot. Cause I quote unquote, I'm saying, cause they're not, Um, but it helps you to actually find your way, you know, and what, but in the situation that you're talking about, so you haven't done this pre-work, you have, you don't have a facilitator, you don't have the conversation going and they, they say some number that's like so far and above what the Beatles had. You just have to make sure that you're coming from a curious stance. So I'm just, I'm curious because I want to understand. You can even say, I just want to understand if there's something different about, about the way those lists work. Ah, um, just say like, cause I, I know that the Beatles had 52 and I always thought they were like the most successful of all time. But of course there wasn't like streaming music and download and videos and the way that we promote now. So I just want to understand like in relation to that, like how, how we come to this number with Drake. So notice yeah. that I didn't, I'm not going, you're wrong. I'm like, I'm curious and I'm allowing, I'm totally allowing in here that there's just a bunch of stuff I don't understand. And I'm just asking you to help me understand it. Well, that's you how we, we don't we don't usually do that. All right, Tim needs Tim needs to run. Annie, as always, great talking to you. All right, bye. All right. Take guys. care. Bye bye. Be well. Okay, so again, just always very thankful for Annie to share her wisdom with us. Tim, I mean, we we grooved on a lot of this throughout. I don't know what more there is to say. Just that. Wow. I mean, this this book is actually, I, I think, one of the more important books that we've read in, in the past couple of years because it really is this plan, this action-oriented book to give people the tools and skills necessary to improve decision-making, to improve how they make decisions. Wow. Yeah, I think... Uh- one of the one of the most wonderful and influential books that I read in the I guess it was early mid two thousands was Jonah Lehrer's How We Decide, mm-hmm. and the, the neuroscience and the the behavioral science of of decision making. And a lot of books in our space in the behavioral science world are about that education and training around uh, you know how you know how this happens, but. But how, or, or, you know how it actually takes place. But this book is what you can do with it. This is the application book that is really, really uh, groundbreaking as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I think it's really important for people in general with their lives. I think it's really important for businesses because if we think about how businesses succeed, they succeed because of the decisions that they make. And one of the grounding points that she has been in thinking in bets and in how to decide is 
we often get caught up in this idea of being right. And so I will, our mind plays a whole bunch of tricks on us to, to make sure that our concept of self is maintained, that we are right. And what Annie highlights, and I love this about her, is I'd rather be wrong and know the truth than be right and living in this lie. And this book, How to Decide, is a toolkit to help you get to that truth and to make those decisions based upon the reality of the world as it is, not the reality or this fantasy of a world of what we want it to be. And that, I think, is what is makes this fantastic. Yeah, not, not bad for an English lit major. <laughs> hey, you know, she's a pretty bright bulb on that Christmas tree. Groovers, this wraps up this episode of Behavior Grooves, and we hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Annie. And if you did, please don't hesitate to give us a quick five-star rating, maybe a brief review. It really goes a long way in helping people find the episode. So have a great week and go out and find your groove. Groove.